Two years ago, far-right groups gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia, to oppose the city council's decision to remove a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee from a public park. The nationalist community came to Charlottesville to defend our heritage. These protests culminated in a Unite the Right rally where members of the alt-right, white supremacist, and neo-Nazi groups clashed with counter-protesters, one of which was killed. More than 49 people were injured. Thirty cities across the country removed Confederate monuments after that. Georgia is among seven southern states that forbid taking down those monuments. Well, the city of Atlanta is taking another approach. It is adding context about the realities of slavery, the Civil War, and the brutality that followed on Four monuments. We're going to talk about this with Karen Cox, who joins me on the line from the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where she is a history professor and author. Karen, welcome. Thank you. And Fritz Bundage is with us. He's history professor at UNC at Chapel Hill, joining us from WNC. Hello, Fitzhugh. Uh, good to talk to you. Here in our Atlanta studio, Sheffield Hale, president and CEO of Atlanta History Center, which is helping fund the installation of additional text to four Atlanta markers. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. All right, Fitz, I'm going to start with you. The vast majority of Confederate graves were in private cemeteries until the Jim Crow era and extending into the early civil rights years. So what was behind the move to install in public squares at the time? I think it was a part of a long-term effort to refurbish the reputation of the Confederacy and the the so-called lost cause, the lost cause of the Confederacy. Given that the Confederacy had been thrashed, I mean completely defeated, and that the armies of the Confederacy had been soundly defeated in virtually every front of the Civil War, and the government had collapsed in, shall we say, a kind of humiliating fashion, there was a long-term effort by the the Civil War generation and the generation following to try to rebuild the image of the Confederacy as a noble effort. And even though everything had been lost, all of the causes for which the war had been waged had been defeated, uh, there was an effort to somehow make it a noble cause. So the monuments that were put up starting in the 1890s, well, 1880s and 1890s and continuing for a generation or more, were an effort to move the issue from honoring the Confederate dead to honoring the Confederate cause. All right. So, Karen, your book, Dixie's Daughters, is about the United Daughters of the Confederacy. What was their role in funding these monuments and memorializing the lost cause? Well, the the, um, the UDC, which was founded in 1894, um, is the group primarily responsible for the vast majority of monuments, um, that we see on landscapes across the South. Um, they were consummate fundraisers, but they also were um, married or related to men of influence in the region, and so it wouldn't have been difficult for them to to fundraise by getting local funds or state funds uh, in order to build a, a monument. But their particular uh, cause, in my estimation, was um, was about vindicating the Confederate generation. And to vindicate meant that uh, it was necessary that 
people honor uh, the Confederate cause um, along the lines of what Dr. Brundage said. Sheffield, the Atlanta History Center has created a guide to interpreting monuments and is going to spend $11,000 to add more information to some of these markers in Atlanta. So given what we've just heard from Fitz and Karen, what to your mind is missing and what are these markers going to add? Well, what's missing is what the people at the time did and why they did it. And then what's on the marker and then what's left off of the marker. Um, Particularly, for example, in Piedmont Park, um, it's a peace monument. How can a peace monument be problematic? Why was it attacked after Charlottesville? Well, these markers tell the story of the fact that the African-American narrative was left out of that, that there was reconciliation without the African-Americans present in a period of dramatic growth in Jim Crow laws. In this case, sandwiched between the 1908 race riots, the erection of the marker in 1911, and 1915, the, um, the reintroduction of the Ku Klux Klan. And are these plaques that are going to be N- added to the No, monuments? these are his exhibition panels. Mm-hmm. I'm an anti-placker. <laughs> okay. I, I think plaques uh, end up disappearing into the monument. And, and what our goal is to turn these into outdoor exhibits. Well, Karen, supporters of Confederate statues argue that the memorials are symbols of honoring heritage, not about hate. So is what is at issue here differing interpretations of history? Well, those who, who say, you know, it, I wouldn't say they would say it was not about hate, but they definitely talk about honoring their heritage. And I think what um, if you read the language of the the United Daughters of the Confederacy, including someone like Mildred Rutherford from Georgia, um, you recognize very swiftly that uh, their ideology, of that of white supremacy, was in keeping with the ideology of of the kind of legislation that was being passed during that time. So, in some ways, people try to extricate, you know, the monument from the ideology. And um, I think you have to understand the ideology to understand that that is part of the context. Well, Karen, you don't think installing contextual markers is the right approach. Have I got that right? Well, here's what I feel about that. I think I I say I, I believe that ship has sailed. And the reason I believe that is is because there was a time when people wanted to add context and no one wanted to listen to that. Um, but I think that what's what's happened is with the passage of um, legislation that prevents the removal um, is is in my mind preventing the discussion and and it I think also that this issue has been allowed to in the wounds of this issue have been allowed to fester uh, and particularly in the aftermath of Charlottesville that we are now at a place where adding context and adding these exhibit panels doesn't um, satisfy people on either side of this issue. Fitz, I'm curious to hear your opinion. Where are you on this idea? I think Karen was very articulate on that point, and I would just add that I think the real issue is now in the seven states that you mentioned that have the laws. The challenge is to change those laws so that communities have the capacity to do what they think is appropriate. Having said that, I certainly salute anyone, given that the law exists, and as long as there are efforts to try to remove the law in North Carolina as a stopgap measure, I think the exercise of coming up with exhibition panels will focus some people's attention on the issue in a way with a kind of clarity 
that may pr produce some useful dialogues. But broadly speaking, I agree with Karen. It is a temporary solution to a long-term problem. Well, uh, and recently protesters knocked down a Confederate statue there in North Carolina where you are. Uh, is that the sort of extreme, you know, placing context, keeping something up, having discussions about it versus just knocking it down? Well, I, I think... It, since you referenced the incidents here in, in North Carolina, that was a, certainly an example of a long, long campaign, a campaign that began well before Charlottesville, that was thwarted year after year after year. And so I think there was a kind of pent-up frustration with the inability to get any change. Uh, and in fact, more than a decade ago, there were calls for plaques to be put up for contextualization. And as Karen said, those plaques were never put up. And so the debate moved beyond them. We're talking about an initiative to add context to Confederate monuments in Atlanta, a model replicated in many places. Fitz Brundage and Karen Cox are both historians and contributors to Confederate Statues and Memorialization. It's a book of a discussion, series of discussions and essays published by the University of Georgia Press. Sheffield Hale is CEO and president from the Atlanta History Museum, which is Atlanta History Center, rather, helping to fund the installation. Now, Sheffield, there are nearly 200 monuments in Georgia, including the largest in the world at Stone Mountain Park. What led Georgia to bar removal of those monuments in 2001? What kind of stipulations are there? Well, well that was the uh, time when the Governor Barnes proposed the change of the flag. And these laws, this law was put in place as, as one of the compromises that went along with that. The other, one of the other things, that they reinstalled the, a portrait of General Robert E. Lee in the state capitol um, with a ceremony. So there were a lot of things that went along to try to get that passed, and this was part of it. And then this year it was enhanced, um, belts and suspenders, to make it really hard um, to move a monument. And they, they actually broadened it to make it look like it was not about Confederate monuments to include all monuments. So this is uh, it, it adding. It, this is to privately owned. I think that is the stipulation here. Are these privately owned lands and monuments? I know in Memphis. Yeah, these are all. These are all federal. I mean, or, excuse me, state and city owned. Those are the only ones they can control. I see. I know in Memphis, the group got together to a nonprofit to buy a park so that they could remove a monument. Let's see what else is going on in other cities. The city of New Orleans removed all of its memorials dedicated to the Confederacy in 2017. Here is Mayor Mitch Landrieu explaining why. To literally put the Confederacy on a pedestal in our most prominent places in honor is an inaccurate recitation of our full past, is an affront to our present, and it is a bad prescription for our future. New Orleans paid about $2 million to remove four Confederate statues. Uh, those statues, when they come down, sometimes people advocate for putting them in museums. Sometimes they're sitting in storage. Also, let's hear from President Trump, who asked how far you go in removing monuments. This was after the Charlottesville rally. This week it's Robert E. Lee. I noticed that Stonewall Jackson's coming down. I wonder, is it George Washington next week? And is it Thomas Jefferson the week after? You know, you, all, you really do have to ask yourself, where does it stop? Karen, does he have a point? I mean, early presidents did own slaves. Should we add context to their memorials or monuments or pictures? I, yeah. <laughs> well, 
unfortunately, our president is not a historian, and I don't think um, that I'd put much stock in this this idea of a slippery slope. Uh, we are not um, removing monuments en masse. It's happened in a few places. Um, um, but, um, you know, I, I think these are two different uh, subjects that we're you know, trying to discuss here, like in, particularly about um, uh, founding fathers. I'd, I'd actually prefer to, uh, you know, allow experts on, on the founding fathers to discuss that. What is the role of historians in civic debate about removal and contextualization? I mean, all of you are um, have roots and foundation and grounding in academic histor- history, but also your citizens, your observers of what is going on in our culture. Who wants to pick that up, Fitz? Sure. Uh, well, I I think we do have an important role, and to a degree, I think we've been trying to play that. Karen, for example, has written op-ed pieces and uh, shared her knowledge with as large an audience as possible. And I think that's exactly right. We should contribute to informing people so that they understand, for example, prior to the Charlottesville event uh, and actually prior to Charleston and Dylan Roof's massacre there in 2015, there were certain preconceptions about monuments, for that matter, about the Confederate flag, that I think have been substantially revised through the help of historians. So that now we know, as you pointed out, that many of these monuments were put up many decades after the Civil War, and they were put up not to honor Confederate dead necessarily, but to honor the Confederacy and the cause itself. So I think we've been contributing as best we could uh, but it's it's also moved in ways now where it's it's part of a l- much larger national debate that is about politics, about ideology, about who it is who is able to talk about American heritage. So, for example, when you heard the alt-right speaker in Charlottesville talk about this is our heritage, well, the Union victory is our heritage, too. So there is nothing unique or privilege, shall we say, about the Confederate memory. And we historians have to try to inform people about how that Confederate memory came to occupy the privileged place it currently has. Well, yeah, at the Atlanta History Center, we've taken the position that if we give people facts and tools where they can deal with their Confederate monuments on a local level, that perhaps is a way around this national dialogue. These are inherently local artifacts. And if you can get a somebody, call them a troublemaker, call them a catalyst, information and tools which they can use in their own local community and have something be bottom-up as opposed to top-down, that in this democratic society seems to work best. Mm. My family is from South Georgia and South Alabama, and I can tell you they don't want anybody from Atlanta telling them what to do. But what they will do and what people will do is find things on the Internet and find this incredible um, history and resources that we try to put together that that um, Fitzhugh and others have 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 done, and they can find it, they can have the tools, and then they can decide what they want to do locally. We live in a democratic society, so let's give people the tools and the information to act on it. Well, Sheffield, in the on the Atlanta History Center's website, it says the status quo is not an option. So that is, is, sounds like a more, I guess, strident, you know, this has got to change kind of position. Right. But we don't say you must take it out or you must contextualize it. It's your choice. That what, our, our, what we're saying is don't leave it uncontested. 
don't wait, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And in this case, we're saying, go ahead and, and do something. And Atlanta has done something. The other cities have been frozen. And we've and, and we'll see where it goes. And this is not the end. This is the beginning. Well, these these panels that we put up, these uh, this exhibition, this is phase one of a discussion. It's not permanent. A marker or a plaque is permanent discussion over. This is an exhibit. This invites inquiry and discussion. All right, we've got to wrap. May I speak on, yes, on please. This as um, well? We've got to wrap in just a minute, though, Karen. But I'd love to hear from you. Right now, I, I've been um, traveling around the country in the last couple of years, particularly in the South. And part of the reason that that things are frozen, as Mr. Hale says, is because that uh, is because not all the stakeholders in the community are allowed to speak on this issue. Very often, it's it's a group of white people and white men who are making decisions about what happens to monuments in a community, and and so uh, all the stakeholders have to be have a seat at the table, and that's not going on everywhere. It might go on, uh, it may be going on in Atlanta or maybe in New Orleans, but it's not going on in the vast majority of towns Karen across Cox. the South, which is why we've got to educate them. Thank you. I've got to wrap you up there, but thank you so much to Karen Cox, Fitz Brundage, and to Sheffield Hale. They are all here to talk about the new move to contextualize some Confederate memorials. Thank you all for speaking with me.